Jesus. He's given a lot of people a lot of awesome talents and grace, which is amazing. And uh, speaking of Jesus, we're in our week two of our More Jesus series. We're studying the book of Colossians. If you missed last week, Seth kicked us off talking about Paul's thanksgiving for the body of believers there. He said he was thankful for the love that the saints had for one another, for the hope they had, and for the fruit they were bearing. He heard about that all the way in prison in Rome. And I think it's interesting when we think about this idea of more Jesus because what was happening in this culture is that, and just like in any culture, people are trying to replace Jesus with something else, right? Jesus is the only thing that can fill that natural void we have. Jesus is the only thing we really need more of. But every day, more and more we're convinced we need more of this, more of that. You know, the iPhone just released uh, the specs for the new iPhone, right? As if the iPhone needs to be updated again. Uh, But, you know, everybody wants that new iPhone, right? It's bigger and better, more powerful. And when you think about your life, in a lot of ways, we're always looking for what's bigger and better and more powerful. But in Christ, we already have that. Amen? There's nothing bigger, better, or more powerful than Jesus. And there's nothing that gives purpose to our lives more than Jesus. You guys remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at God's glory being the purpose for which he created us, according to Isaiah 40. 3, 7, right? And we said that his glory was the purpose for our life and God's will for our life was obedience and he is glorified most when our love for him compels us to obedience. And I think today as we look at uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14, we're gonna see that Paul's prayer has a lot to do with that idea of fulfilling our purpose to glorify God because in Paul's prayer, he says this really powerful statement. He says that when we're living in a manner or a way that is pleasing God, and we're walking in a manner that's worthy of God. We're doing what we need to be doing. He wants the church to walk in a way that is worthy of God. And we're not worthy in and of ourselves, right? We all know that if we were to take an inventory of our lives, we could see how unworthy we are to be with God, right? Because we fall short of God's standard. And God's standard is what? Perfection, right? No sin, not a spot, blemish, or stain. Yet, even though we're not worthy, God demonstrated how much we were worth it to him by sending his only son to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, be punished on the cross for our sin. And he gives us hope in his resurrection. So the gospel really outlines this idea of a bunch of unworthy people who God deemed worth it. And so then Paul's prayer is, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of that God. And that's a big deal. And when you do that, you're going to please him in every way. So I'm going to break this down. But first, I just want to read through the passage. So Colossians 1, 9 through 14 says this. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, 
bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in his inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to the kingdom of the Son he loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." That's a long passage, right? Five verses. And I'll tell you what, this was a rough one because I've been praying about it for several weeks. And I I sat down to really put nuts and bolts down early this week. And I was just having a hard time. How do I start this, right? And so I ended up after a few hours saying, I need to go eat. And so I went to the Peking house. And if you know me, that's not a surprise, right? I went to the Peking house and I brought with me my Bible and a few notes I had jotted. And, and, and through that time, was able to sit down and really unpack this. So something I haven't done in a while was write down. You know, I usually type, but I sat and wrote through this. And so today I just kind of want to share with you, I found three different sections in these five verses that really stood out to me that help us understand a little better what Paul is praying. So we're going to start with verses 9 and 10a, so the first half of 10. Um, And so at the beginning of that, we're going to ask these big six questions, the journalism questions, right? Who, when, where, what, why, and how? That's important, right? That's a letter, And we want to know who wrote the letter and who the letter's for, so we know Paul wrote it, right? And he wrote it for the church of the Colossians. And he also wants it to be shared with the church at Laodicea, which we read in chapter 4, verse 16. And so Paul's writing this letter to a church. When is Paul praying? Paul is praying without ceasing since the day he heard of the church's love in the Spirit. So Paul is praying for the church. He wrote this letter to He's praying without ceasing, continually, it says. Since he heard of their love in the Spirit, he hasn't stopped. I just want to think about that just for a second. The Apostle Paul, right, in prison, whether he's in the hole in the ground or he's in house arrest, he's awaiting his trial. He's praying without ceasing for a body of believers he's never even met because he's heard of their faith. Think about that. Imagine the power of that prayer, because we know the, the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective, right? And we know Paul's a righteous man, not on his own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. But we know he didn't stop praying for this church. Imagine the fruit that was bore because of one man's faithful prayer. Where is he praying from? Like I said, he's praying from prison in Rome. What is he praying for? He's praying for the church to have knowledge of God's will in or through, depending on the translation, all the wisdom and understanding the Holy Spirit gives. Why would he pray for them to have knowledge of God's will? That's an important thing. Like, he could pray for anything, right? But he's praying they would have knowledge of God's will. And when you think about context here, he's writing to a church that would have been heavily influenced by Gnosticism, right? And this idea of Gnosticism that because God is God, then God is not knowable, or he's esoteric, And so he's praying to this church that they would know God's will, and the only way they would know God's will is through the knowledge and wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit, not through some urge they had or some vague sense, right, but because of the direct impact of the Holy Spirit in their life. But God's will is knowable, and that's important today because sometimes I think we don't really believe that. 
Because a lot of times we feel like if God would just give me a sign, if God would just tell me, if God would just make it clear to me, God has and will and does make it clear in Paul's prayers that the church would know God's will. And, you know, God's will is important because when we become Christians, when we surrender our life to Christ, God's will takes precedent over our will. In fact, when I do the confession before baptism, I say, are you willing to forsake your will for his will? Just kind of like in a marriage ceremony, right? Forsaking all others. You're making this commitment to God that his will now triumphs over yours because he is now Lord, not just Savior, but Lord of your life. He owns you. You become a vessel of his mercy, a part of his body. Your will takes back seat because you die to yourself daily. So knowing God's will is important, and you can't do God's work if you don't know what God calls you to. And he's praying that the Spirit would reveal in the believers his will. Why is Paul praying? So that the church will live a life or walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. We have a purpose, right? And our purpose is to glorify God. And when we are walking in a worthy manner, when we are seeking to please God in every way, we are fulfilling that purpose. So he wants them to know what God's will is so that they can go on to do it, right? And that's his prayer. And this is a constant prayer. And how is he praying continuously. So when is he praying? Without ceasing. How is he praying continuously? This is never leaving him. He's constantly in this prayer that they would know God's will so that they can walk in a worthy manner pleasing God. Imagine if our prayer life looks something more like that. Imagine if when I woke up today, that was my prayer, you know? Right? Every day when I wake up, I have to admit that not every day I'm thinking this clearly about God, right? Especially because we have a schedule. And I like to sleep in the morning. If anybody here that knows me knows, like, getting up early is not my thing. Uh, Theta's usually up six hours before I am. Um, And they're up here and they're wide awake and I'm coming in here barely able to see because my eyes are still blurry from sleeping. And so in the morning, I'm not always where I need to be. But I love this challenge because this week as I read through this, I thought about when I wake up, the first thing I'm thinking about is how can I please God in every way, right? How can I walk in a worthy manner? Not because I am worthy on my own merit, but because Christ made me worthy through his merit. And if I'm going to represent him, then I need to walk as he walked. And that's the prayer. So, the beginning of this prayer kind of sets out those big six. And I'm going to skip down now to verses 12 and 13 because I want to look at what motivates us, right? What's the motivation for us to live a life for Christ? Why were, what were these people responding to? What hope did they have that let them give up everything? It says, um, first, that God qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints or his holy people. God qualifies us. And we all know that in life, a lot of the things we're involved in have requirements or qualifications, right? Like, you know, you go apply for a job and they want to know if you have a high school or GED, right? Or a college degree. Do you have any experience? Um, Can you demonstrate to us any aptitude you have for this? What are the qualifications to be a part of this organization? Or a commitment to any kind of club, right? Or any kind of athletic sport. You can't be involved in a team sport 
and actively participate if you don't show up to practice. Right? There's qualifications. And to be qualified to be inheriting what the saints will inherit, we could have never done on our own. We don't simply have what it takes to qualify for God's service. But God himself qualifies us anyway, which is awesome. Like God himself said, I want you so badly to be a part of this, I'm going to qualify you. And how do you do that? We know through Jesus, right? So God qualifies us. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2.8. He says that we're saved by what? Faith through grace and this not of ourselves, so that no man may boast. God qualifies us. He saves us, right? Or another time in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says that God made him who knew no sin become sin so we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. Not we might earn, we might aspire to, we, we have gravitated toward. No, we become this because God qualifies us through our faith. So first, God qualifies us. Second, God rescues us. Right? We're in need of rescue. How many of you guys know you're in need of rescue today? That if left to your own devices, as good as you think you are, as well as you think you're doing, you would fall far short of the standard you have for yourself. How many know that? You can't even meet your own standards. Right? Much less God's standard, which is perfection. Right? We're in need of rescue because there is dominion or sovereignty or an easier word to understand, control of darkness. There's this kingdom, there's this, this part of life that is in control of those who aren't in Christ, that has sovereignty and dominion over them, and we needed rescue. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 3, we were once children of wrath, children of wrath by nature. We were once enemies of God, Romans five ten, In Colossians 1, 21, we're alienated and hostile toward God. I mean, I think that some of us get this intellectually, but a lot of times we don't understand that here because we don't feel like we're enemies of God. We don't feel like we're hostile toward God. We don't feel like we're alienated from God because we don't really feel our sin. It becomes a very intellectual exercise that becomes about shame and guilt and duty, right? Instead of understanding intrinsically, I want what I want and not what God wants. And what I want is evil most of the time. In fact, that's what the Bible says if you go back to Genesis 5, right? He looked down on man. He saw that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And God repented in the NASB of making man. So he decided to flood the earth. That's a big deal. We're not exempt from that. Right, Because what happens as soon as Noah gets out of the boat? Not only Noah, but his son, which is even a worse story that you can't really tell kids about. Right, So it didn't change anything except for God showing from even then that he had a plan and a desire to redeem us, to save us. Because that's how Peter refers to it. So God has qualified us, he rescues us, but he doesn't just rescue us out of something, he brings us into something else, right? And we all know that in life, when we have bad habits, when we have addictions, when we have things that are getting in the way of doing what we need to go, we have to replace it with something else, right? You can't just take something out and leave that void. It needs to be replaced. God replaced it by bringing us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves, right? 
He replaced that. And so he takes this broken, enslaved to sin, fallen people, transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. He does that. We don't do it. It's not like one day I decided, oh, you know, I want to follow God, so I'm going to do this list of things and I'll be following God. No, God supernaturally, in spite of me, because of his rich grace and mercy, chose to reveal himself to me. And when I surrendered to him and gave my life and laid it down and was buried with him in baptism, I was raised to newness of life, added to his kingdom. And what does that look like? Well, according to Paul in Colossians 3, 3, we're hidden in Christ. No. In Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us and seated us with Christ in heavenly realms. So now we are with Christ. We are hidden in him. We are raised and seated with him. We are no longer where we once were. We're no longer citizens of this earth, but what? Citizens of heaven. We just finished that series, right? So God qualifies, rescues, transfers us, and he gives us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We needed forgiveness in order to have a right relationship with God because God is just, and God will not let our sin go unpunished. And we think about that, like when we hear the word forgiveness, we're thinking, God let it slide, because that's how human parents do it, right? God let it slide. Like if I got pulled over for speeding and I didn't get a ticket, it's because the police officer let it slide. God doesn't let anything slide. It's against his nature. So every single time you gave into temptation and you sinned against God, Jesus was punished for that. Think about that for a minute. We don't really think about that because if we did, we would say no far more often, right? We would. When I was a new believer, I always was thinking about this idea like, I love Jesus, I say I love Jesus, and if I give in to this temptation, Jesus will have suffered the wrath of his father on behalf of me for this sin. Is this sin worth that? Is it worth it? No, because I love him, and if I love somebody, I don't want to purposely cause them harm. He redeemed us. Sin has a cost just because you don't suffer the cost. And your earthly consequence for sin doesn't mean you're not redeemed in the blood of Christ through faith. And it's not the end-all punishment either. It's just a natural consequence of that sin. And there's a difference between punishment and consequence, right? Anybody that knows discipline knows we have what? Positive reinforcement, natural consequence, and negative reinforcement, which would be punishment, right? The natural consequence of sin is death and destruction. But there's also a punishment, and that's the wrath of God, which we don't want and we don't have to have through faith. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, talking about Christ, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The Hebrew writer says it this way in 9.15, For this reason, Christ now is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set free those committed under the first covenant. God does all the work. He qualified us, rescued us, transferred us. He's redeeming us which is staggering when you think about the little role that we play in that. What do we need to do? Get out of his way. But that's tough, right? That's tough because it's my life and I want to do what I want to do, even though what I want to do always leads down the wrong road. 
Because for just a little while, it may make sense. Or just a little while, it may ease some of that pain. For just a little while, it may make me forget. Because being a Christian is not easy. You can't read the Apostle Paul and think, wow, he had it good, man. You know, he was living in the Trump Tower, you know. He ate caviar. No. But Paul didn't care. Because Paul had something that a lot of us don't. And that's a peace that surpasses understanding. Right? He didn't need his situation to be good in order for him to be good with God. He just needed Christ. So... If you agree, fine. If you don't agree, that's okay. We're going to look at how do we know whether or not we are living and walking in a worthy way? How do we know we're pleasing God? In fact, how do we know that we're receiving verses 12 and 13 in our lives? How do, what's the evidence of that? Well, we're going to have to bounce backwards a little bit. Look at the second half of verse 10 through 11. And Paul asked the first question, or praise this, so I'm going to ask it as a question. Are you bearing fruit in every good work? Are you bearing fruit? The first self-examination question is, what does my life look like? Am I bearing fruit in every good work, right? And that's important because that's what Paul's prayer is. In fact, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 3, 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There needs to be evidence in your life that you are living in a repentant manner, If you can't see that evidence, you're in danger. It's not a threat. It is an examination. We need to be able to point out that we are bearing fruit. And God has called us to a perfect standard. Jesus says what? Be perfect as the Father is perfect. He's not just making that up. I know the human excuse is I'm only human. I can't be perfect. That doesn't stand before God. Because you have the very righteousness of the Son within you. You stand perfect before God, not because of your own merit, but because of Jesus' merit. And so we're called to walk in that manner, to bear fruit in keeping with that. James writes this in James 5, 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. This idea that this is a patient process. Bearing fruit may come early and late. There's going to be a whole lifetime, whatever scope your lifetime is, where fruit needs to be bore. It's not like, well, I bore fruit when I was young, and now I'm done. Right? Your whole life. And it may be in some areas you don't feel like you're bearing fruit where you need to. It may be that the late rains are coming. Right? It may be one of those things where you're waiting 40 years. That wasn't unheard of in the Bible. In fact, how long did Noah wait? Like 120 years? For rain that nobody had ever seen before because before that time, things got watered from underneath. And they're laughing at him, mocking him, thinking he's crazy. He waited. Those late rains are going to come. Paul says it like this in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters. Are you bearing real fruit? Who are you trying to please when people are looking when they're not? You know, it's really easy to work hard when you feel like you're getting appreciated and rewarded. It's a lot harder when nobody sees. It's a lot harder when you're being discriminated against or discouraged. But you're not working for other people. You're working for the Lord. And you can't bear fruit in every good work unless he's the one that's working in you to bear the fruit because only the fruit of the Spirit is righteous fruit. Amen? It's not the fruit of the flesh. It says our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
The best we can bring to God is a filthy rag, like an oil-stained rag. You want to clean off your dining room table with that? Is that going to be healthy to eat off of? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Remember from a couple weeks ago, knowing God is a requirement for having eternal life, right? Jesus says that in John 17, 3. But more importantly, if you don't know God, you won't glorify him. And if you don't glorify him, you won't be walking in a manner worthy of God. You won't be walking in a manner worthy of God if you don't glorify him. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You know right now you do not need anything more than you have. I want you to hear that again. You do not need anything more than you have to live a godly life. You don't, all you need is, is, is a greater knowledge of who Jesus is. Remember, we talked about knowledge is experience. It comes through experience. When I obey what God's will is, I experience Jesus. Remember my story about the check. And now I have a greater knowledge. We already possess what we need. We need to stop asking God for more and start digging deeper into what we have. Does that make sense? Stop asking for more. Start digging deeper into what you already have because we have everything we need. Or it says this in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Grow into this knowledge. The idea is that if you're not growing in your knowledge of Christ, you're not going to be living a godly life, and a godly life is a life worthy of God, right? Are you being strengthened in power according to his glorious night? Not yours, right? Again, this goes back to God's work, right? So, the only way we know God is through God, right? Because he chose to reveal himself through his spirit and what he's created, right? Are you being strengthened in his power? A lot of times, one of my big failures is I'm trying to do things on my own power, right? God has gifted some of us in different ways that allow us to be really decent or even good at some things where it doesn't require a lot of dependence on him. And then there's those other areas, Right? But everybody has a different thing. But God wants us to depend on him even in those areas where we're strong. Are we being strengthened by him? And Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In Isaiah 40.31, it says, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, and they will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 12.9-10, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you can't walk in a worthy manner pleasing God if you aren't allowing God to strengthen you with his might. And Paul puts it best, I think, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of them. So we may not fix our eyes on what is seen, but rather on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're wasting away out here. But inwardly, are we being renewed? Do you feel that today? Do you feel the presence of God strengthening you even though out here you're deteriorating because the day you're born, what? You're dying, right? 
This body is destined to perish. Last two points. Do you possess great patience and endurance? Do you possess that? Not on your own. Some people are patient. And some people are hard-headed, right? Tenacious. We call them stubborn, tenacious, enduring, persevering, right? Some words are positive. Some are negative, right? Depending on how we feel about what they're doing. But do you possess what God gives us? Because, you know, we're commanded only three things by Jesus. To love the Lord our God. To love our neighbor as ourself. And to love one another the way he loved us, right? And you know, it's funny about that when I look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. The first thing that pops out there is what? Love is patient. <laughs> love is patient. And love always perseveres or is enduring, right? So two of the requirements of godly love are patience and endurance. Do you possess those today? Because if you don't, you can't walk in a worthy manner because the primary thing God calls us to do is to love the way he loves, which is patient and enduring. That's something the Spirit gives us. And the last point today is, are you joyfully giving thanks to the Father? You know? And this is something I really believe comes from the Spirit as well. Because naturally, on my own, a lot of what God's asking me to do is way beyond what I want to do, is way beyond what I aspire to do, is way beyond what I get joy in doing before I came to Christ. But when I came to Christ, what I aspired to do, what I found joy in doing, and what I desired to do aligned much more closely with what God desires. It says this in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And Nehemiah says it this way in 8.10, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some, of those, send some for those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And Paul warns in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. But their thinking became futile and their hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. So you can't walk in a worthy manner, pleasing God, if you aren't continually giving thanks to the Lord, rejoicing in him. And this isn't determined by our circumstance. It's determined by our faith. So what are your prayers like for those you love? Right? What are they like? Are you praying like Paul? Are you praying that they would walk in a manner worthy of God? Pleasing him in every way, because that may not look like what you want their life or envision their life to look like. That may send them down a, a path that will ultimately lead to their death. But we only got one life to live. And if we don't live for him, we lost it anyway. How is your walk going today? Based on some of the things that Paul's called us to bearing fruit, possessing great patience and endurance, being strengthened from within, having joy. Is there somewhere in your life where you need to repent? Maybe you surrendered your life to Christ, but it's time to recommit to walking daily with him, dying to yourself so that you can please him in the manner in which you walk. Have you thought about all God's done for you lately? God does the work in qualifying, rescuing, transferring, and redeeming us. We become a part of his kingdom, not on our own merit, not because... We wanted to choose God, but because God loved us first while we were yet his enemies. 
Have you thought about that? Has that penetrated today? Even in the midst of the great that you got going on in your life where we come complacent with God because we don't need him or in that place where we feel so despairing where we don't see him or that place in the middle where a lot of us are today. If you have any need of help, we're a family. I know it can be scary to ask for help. It can be almost shameful sometimes. So I'm not expecting that everybody come forward, although we all need prayer for this. Because none of us, if we're honest, are walking in a worthy manner. But you know, maybe there's somebody you trust out in the audience. And I'm going to close in a prayer. And maybe during that time, it's a time that you can pray, pray a prayer of confession to God for where you're falling short. Not so that you feel bad, but so that you can be renewed. Because the Bible says that if we confess our sins to him, he is just to forgive. And the blood of Jesus Christ covers our unrighteousness. Because you know, those who, of us who are in Christ are forgiven. We don't need to ask for it again. We need to repent, right? We need to accept that what we're doing, what we're pursuing isn't godly. And we need to turn away from it. And when we admit that before God, God can do the work for us. And maybe you're not in a bad place. Maybe you're in a place where you feel full and you need to encourage. Look for somebody, pray for somebody to encourage today before they leave. We bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're humbled by this letter and I just keep getting this vision in my mind of what this would have looked like physically as it traversed so much ground and it was passed from house to house, city to city tears, stains the moisture, the dirt the dust, but the heart that bled into these words I pray we don't take it for granted Paul wasn't just writing to them by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing us today And may we all walk in a manner worthy of you, Lord, pleasing you in every way so that we can bear fruit. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.